Howdy, partners. You're listening to Conversations with Jacob, hosted by my good friend, Jacob Waller. Make sure to check out the podcast where podcasts are available and check out the video version on YouTube. You can follow us on social media. Facebook is Conversations with Jacob. Twitter is at CWJ Podcast. And you can visit our website, conversationswithjacobpodcast.weebly.com. Hey, you got a show idea? Maybe a guest suggestion? Email us at conversationswithjacob at gmail.com. Now, here's your host, Jacob Waller. What's going on, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of Conversations with Jacob, and today is episode number 48. And so, and we're just a few away from episode 50. Oh, we got a good episode uh, kind of lined up for you today because we're talking Elvis. But before I get to our guest today, uh, which I ain't going to go through the, the podcast plugs because you've heard it from my good friend, Mr. Jake Thorne, on the intro. But I do want to plug a podcast uh, that I've been listening to for a while. It's called Two Chairs, No Waiting. It's an Andy Griffin uh, uh, podcast uh, for fans hosted by Adam Newsom. Uh, you can find it, two chairs, no waiting.com. Also on YouTube. And joining me today is the spy guy from YouTube. He does uh, all kinds of videos from Elvis and to digging up his own yard, apparently, from what I've seen in some of his videos. <laughs> so, Spy Guy, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jacob. Great to see you, my friend. Oh, yeah. Um, so, for people who don't know who you are, can you give us a little background? Yeah, um, I'm just an Elvis fan that started um, uh, <clears throat> making Elvis videos, Elvis history videos, and I do a lot of subjects now, you know, in the beginning, I kind of focused on Elvis specifically, but I do James Dean, uh, you know, a, a wide variety of things that especially old school stars that are kind of iconic things that, that I'm interested in. And my formula is kind of going back. If I could find a photograph that happened somewhere or a story that happened somewhere, I try to go back physically to that place where the story happened at and tell the story and kind of bring it all back to life. And it's just, I, I, you know, we, I really don't understand why I'm compelled to tell stories and compelled to go to places, but it's just something about reading a story or hearing a story or seeing a photograph and going there that just kind of brings it all back to life for me. And uh, it's just fun. Now, and when did you decide to make a YouTube channel? Well, um, I own a hot tub company. That's why I'm called the Spa Guy. And I've had that hot tub company for a long, long, long time. I started that in 2005. So around 2009, I believe it was, uh, as part of my marketing for selling hot tubs, I started putting hot tub videos and I needed a place on my, I put them on my website but I needed a place to host the videos. So I used uh, YouTube as a place to put a video and then I would put a link in on my website. And then I started doing, I thought, well, people would be interested in maybe seeing what went into moving hot tubs or repairing a hot tub. Um, so I started filming myself repairing hot tubs. I started filming myself doing really odd hot tub moves. I even went into uh, doing hot tub uh, repos, if you can imagine that. I have six <laughs> hot tub repo videos, um, but I just did different things hot tub related. And then <clears throat> from 2009 till 20, I'm going to say 2016-ish, um, I had gotten about 3,500 subscribers. Oh, wow. So I thought, you know, I want to do something to maybe, I, I loved on YouTube, I, Adam the Woo. I watched Adam. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I liked the way Adam told stories. And I thought, I want to do that. I want to go out and and do kind of what Adam did. And so that's what I, I set out to do. I used a little bit of his formula, a little bit of stuff that was me, 
just a little bit from all these different things that I thought were interesting and started making videos about other subjects. Um, an example would be uh, a lot of history things, things that I just thought were interesting. Like here, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and we had things like there's a cave that Timothy DeMombrian, the first white settler that came to Nashville, lived in. And I found the cave. It was a tourist attraction in the 30s, but it was actually hidden and grown up with trees. And I went uh, down a cliff and went into the cave and only to find out there was a set of steps on the other side. <laughs> I didn't have to go down the cliff to get in there. I could have just walked down the steps, but I didn't know until I went through the cave, but just stuff like that. And I would put it on the channel and just, I was just trying different things that were interesting to me, um, different subjects. And nothing really caught on until my daughter got married and her husband was in medical school and they moved to Memphis. And so prior to that, we had always been, I'd been a tourist going to Memphis to see Elvis stuff or, or whatever we were there for. When she moved there, my wife and I would go often visiting them. He was in medical school, so he was busy. They would go shopping. I would be there with nothing to do. So I always had good cameras, drones, because I was doing that kind of stuff, doing my hot tub videos. I flew drones and did all these different things that had really good camera equipment to make hot tub related videos. And one day I thought, one weekend, I thought, you know, I'm going to go to Graceland. I wonder what's past it. I'd never driven past the, uh, there's a day's Inn on the corner on Elvis Presley Boulevard. I don't think I'd ever really went much further than that down Elvis Presley Boulevard. So I went over there. I wasn't going to go to the house. I just wanted to look around, you know, no pressure on myself to go to the house and stuff like that to just kind of look, what was it like when Elvis lived there? What, what was this neighborhood? Like, so I drove past it and went down to the mall, Southland Mall down there. And I'm circling and looking at stuff and I'm driving behind Graceland and looking at all the houses back there. And I knew Vernon's house was on Dolan Street, which is just to the right of Graceland. And I saw the house and I remember pulling up and just kind of looking at it and driving on past it. And then I stopped and I thought, you know what? I bet a lot of people don't know that house is there. So I pulled over and I got my drone out and I flew the drone and I got my camera. And I made a video about it, about the house being there and showed the drone footage and stuff. And I, uh, that next week, I put it on my YouTube channel and I got 30,000 views the first month oh, wow. of my video. And I went, okay, okay. So maybe I've got, there's an audience for this. Maybe I'm on to something. So then I made another video and then another one and then another one and another one. And I don't know how many there are now. I lost count at 600. Oh, wow. um, but I know on the channel, there's about, there's almost 1,500 videos on the channel and six or 700 of those videos are Elvis related. All right. Now, um, now I was talking to a good friend of mine today and she brought up this question. When you go to these sites that are no longer there, how do you find out where they was at before? That's a great question. So there's several different ways that you can do it. Um, the, the most useful thing is historic aerials is what it's called. That's the name of the website. And you can actually log into historic aerials. You could put an address in and it will show you um, aerials from the fifties. Mm. And, and in a lot of cases, it'll show you fifties. Uh, it'll do like 55, 56, 59, 61, 64, 67, 71, 72, so, and it'll go all the way up to current day. And so you can go back and, and it has these tools and you have to, you don't have to pay for it exactly, but if you don't pay for the aerials, it'll say historic aerials on top of the pictures. So when you're researching, we'll, I'll just kind of look around the, 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 that overlay in there. But when I'm using historic aerials in videos, I will buy the photograph. So what you can do is choose an area and you can say, I want this area like around Graceland. I've purchased Graceland from 55 on. I have basically every year that they did them. I've got probably a mile square high resolution looking down on Graceland where you can go and zoom in and look at the different stuff. And what's interesting is the resolution on a lot of the, the photographs from the 50s 
are way better than the resolution in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, and you would think that that it would have been the other way, but the 50s photographs, a lot of them are really, really good. Sadly, the 50s photographs are not everything. So it'll be a high, highly populated area will have some good photographs. Um, but some of the other areas, there, there are no historic aerials. And of course, now you could do the same thing with Google. You know, you can look down. So what we'll do is look at, if I'm researching a story that I haven't physically been to yet, I'll go look at the aerials. I'll look at modern day. And the historic aerials actually can go modern day all the way back. And they have a tool. They have several different tools. But one of them I really like is you can overlay, for instance, a aerial from 55 on top and put an aerial from 2023 on top of it and then have a flashlight tool where you could go on it and actually look through wherever the flashlight shines. You could see from this layer to that layer. So you can actually pull off and see where something used to be and see where things are around it. And I found that thing to be accurate within inches, not feet, inches. Oh. And so uh, something that we used that for recently was Trey and I went to Los Angeles and drove the James Dean uh, route that he took the day he had the, the car accident and died. So he left Los Angeles. He picked his mechanic up. And we left where he picked the mechanic up and drove out to where he died. And when you go to where he died at that intersection, <clears throat> a couple of different things that that struck me about this is in my mind, I've seen the photos. You probably, I don't know if you're a James Dean fan, but you've seen the photos. Yeah. And so when you look at those photos, I just thought this is a remote area. There's going to be very little traffic out here. We're going to go, and it's going to be out in the middle of nowhere. Jacob, I'm surprised that we survived being there. There was so many cars and trucks and motorhomes and tractor trailers, and they were driving so fast that we almost couldn't get our shots. We would have to step out in the road and try to get a shot and jump in real quick. I mean, I've never seen the amount of, of, um, of traffic that was there, and it was so loud. That's the other thing is – Cars nowadays are really loud. And so when we're trying to film, I'm listening for what's around me, the ambient noise. And there's a lot of times I have to film things a couple of times because the vehicle's driving or accelerating real fast or whatever, and they mess your sound up. Um, but anyway, I told you all that to tell you this. They have a memorial there where this, this happened at on a fence line where fans have put things for James and all this kind of stuff. And and there's a memorial there. So we wanted to figure out if the where the people are putting the memorial stuff is where they believe the photo of the car up against the fence, up against the telephone pole is. It's actually about 20 feet to the right. It's mm. on that same fence line. The fence is in exactly the same spot it was in 1954 when that are, yeah, that I think it, I'm, I'm going from memory, but I'm sure 54 is right. Um, in 1954 when James died, but it's the fence is exactly in the same spot, but where his car would have been is about 20 feet to the right of where, where if you go there, just know 20 feet to the right of where that stuff is, is where the car was actually resting about 20 feet, 2025. Oh, wow. When we were able to figure that out with these historic aerials. Yeah. Now, when did you become interested in Elvis? That's a great question. Um, I had in the, I'm going to say it was the fifth grade. I had, uh, it would have been 1976. Um, and a friend from school, a guy named Troy Robinson. And I thought Troy was rich, by the way. And compared to us, he was rich. His father owned a jewelry store, a Robinson Jewelers, which is in Greenville, North Carolina. They just recently retired and closed. Uh, his brother, Mike, actually ran it after his father passed away. Um, but Troy invited me to his house, and I can still remember walking into Troy's house, walking in his bedroom. And over on the when I walked through the door, over on the right-hand side was a stack of records standing up side by side by side by side. And it was about, from my memory, about, about two feet wide. Mm. And when I saw it, I said, well, what's that? He said, that's my Elvis records. I said, what? What, what do you mean? 
And I knew who Elvis was, but I'd never seen that many Elvis records, you know. So he walked over and picked one out and started playing. He said, let me let you listen to some. And he played Aloha from Hawaii, the, you know, the one that you open like that. Mm-hmm. He put it on his turntable and he played it for me. And uh, we were sitting there listening to that. And, and somehow in the conversation that day, I ended up taking home. I paid him a dollar for a cassette version of Aloha from Hawaii and took it home. And, and back then the cassette player was about this big and you stuck the cassette and pushed it down like that. And I laid on that thing in my bed and listened to it in the, um, uh, in the, in my bed in the speaker on the tape player on the cassette player. And just, you know, when you're a kid, especially if you're kind of poor, there's not a lot to do. So I listened to this and him bantering back and forth with the band and all the things that he was doing in that, the Aloha, you know, the satellite show. And I just thought, who is this? You know, I never, I knew who Elvis was, but I knew Hound Dog Elvis. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. That's the Elvis I knew, you know, as a kid. And uh, so I just thought, who is this person? You know, what is this? And so I started uh, reading books uh, and Troy loaned me things. And I started really delving into who this person was and found out he had the Memphis Mafia and he had all these girls and he had a mansion. And, you know, who is this guy? He shoots TVs. He carries guns. He drives cool cars. You know, who is this person? So I started really researching him. Sadly, he died the very next year. Um, I would have been about uh, in 77 when he died. I'd have been, what, uh, 12 years old. And so sadly, he died when I was 12. And I, I learned about him or started getting into it when I was 11. And um but Troy Robinson's who turned me on to that, you know, to the idea of it. Sadly, Troy passed away. He died very young. He died at 52. Uh, but Troy was a lifelong friend of mine and a lifelong Elvis fan friend as well uh, up until his passing. And he owned a jewelry store. So he always had the coolest jewelry. I bought a watch from him, a Mickey Mouse watch, a Mickey Mouse gold watch. And he always had a lot of really cool stuff. It was a great guy. He always had really long hair, looked kind of like an Indian. Um, you know, um, and just, just a great, just a good person. And he's the reason that I'm an Elvis fan. How about that? Now, do you got a favorite Elvis song or a a movie? Well, um, trilogy would probably be my favorite song or one of my favorite. I mean, it's hard to pick, man. There's so many really good ones. And on the movies, you know, I, I like a lot of the different ones for a lot of different reasons. Um, one of my favorites would, of course, been um, uh, I like Loving You. I like I like GI Blues. I like Viva Las Vegas. And when I was a teenager, now you got to consider um, back in the day for people that are not as old as me, back in the day in the 70s and 80s, in the 70s specifically, you couldn't just go watch an Elvis movie. That wasn't a thing. So the way I watched them was in my town we had, or in my my vicinity where I lived at, uh, they had a guy's name was Will C is what he went by on the, um, on the TV. And he had Will C's Red Eye Cinema. And on Will C's Red Eye Cinema, every Friday night, he would do a, a he would do three movies of uh, a theme. Like one time it would be uh, military. So it would be Toro, Toro, Toro and the Sands of Iwo Jima. One weekend it would be a monster movie. So it would be the Bride of Frankenstein and Dracula and those kinds of things. One weekend it would be Elvis movies. So it was um, Girls, Girls, Girls was one of them. Uh, 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 G.I. Blues would be one that I would have watched like that. This would have been uh, late 70s. Another one would have been um, uh, Blue Hawaii, would have been a popular one. But he would do that. It would come around again every probably two months. And when it came around again, it would be different movies. But those movies I fell in love with because those are the first time I saw those movies. I saw Girls, 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 uh, Viva Las Vegas, um, Blue Hawaii, um, Paradise Hawaiian Style 
all those long before I ever saw Love Me Tender and Jailhouse Rock and Kid and Kid Galahad would have been another one. Which, by the way, Trey and I just went and filmed all the Kid Galahad stuff in Out of Wild, California, wow. and um, a lot of the stuff that is in that movie is still in Out of Wild, and I mean a lot of it. And so we've got some really cool stuff coming out where we filmed all that. It's just outside of Palm Springs, up high in the mountains. Now, you've been about everywhere, I guess, to where Elvis has been. Is there a place that you would like to go that you haven't been to yet? Hawaii. I have not, I've not done any of the Hawaii stuff yet. Um, but I have done, uh, you know, Elvis went to Paris. I've been to Paris and filmed all the Elvis stuff. He lived in Germany. I've been all over Germany. I've been all over the Netherlands where the Colonel was born at. Um, and much of the stuff in the United States I've been to, not all of it, but a lot of it. All of the LA stuff I've pretty much done. Um, and so I've had a lot of luck going places, but Hawaii is, is high on the list for sure. Do you get a favorite spot that you've been to? Well, yeah, there's, uh, man, there's, there's so many. Um, I really enjoyed Germany. I got to stay in the bedroom. He lived at the Hotel Grunewald in Bad Nauheim, Germany, for about four months. And I got to stay in the room that he stayed in, and it still looks just like it did believe it or not, in 1958 when he was there. And the hotel still looks very much like it did. And uh, so that was would be one place that, um, that I would definitely plan on going back to. And it was just fun because it wasn't just seeing Elvis stuff. I was going to Germany. You know, I had, you know, you th when I think of Germany, just being transparent, I think, I thought that there was going to be a whole, I thought it was going to be a, a real, I thought I was going to be afraid, just being honest. I thought when I got to the border of Germany, there was going to be people there dressed in military uniforms saying, I want to see your papers and that kind of stuff. There was nothing like that. Nothing at all. It was literally when I drove or I rode actually with a friend, when we crossed the border from the Netherlands into Deutschland, which is Germany, it was just like, in the United States driving from one state to the other. If we left here and got on I-65 and went to Kentucky, that's exactly what it looked like when we got to Germany. There's no border walls. You're just driving on the highway. Now, do you remember the first time that you attended Elvis week? Yes. Um, the very first time that I uh, attended Elvis week, I don't know what year it was, but I believe... I'm pretty sure it was 2002. So would 2002 be 25 years or 30? It'd be uh, so <laughs> I think it's 25. So 77, 87, 97, 2002 would be what, 25 years. So it was the 25th anniversary. And what I did was at the time I was working with Elvis's first guitar player, Scotty Moore. And Scotty, I was selling autographed items from Scotty, autographed pictures, books, personal items, posters, all that kind of stuff. And I went to Scotty, bought a lot of stuff autographed and went to Elvis Week and stood. There used to be a Shoney's there. The Shoney's is gone now, which would be there's a Kentucky Fried Chicken there now. It'd be to the left of the Kentucky Fried Chicken. There's a, a empty space. When the Shoney's was there, I set up on the sidewalk, on the grass between the sidewalk and the street, while the people were going to, to Elvis Week, while they were going to the candlelight. And I sold everything that I had in one hour. Wow. Yeah, and I thought I took enough stuff for a whole week. I literally sold it all in one hour as people were walking by. Oh, wow. Now, uh, Hudson, during one Elvis Week that you got your stuff stolen... Well, I don't know if it was during Elvis week. I don't, I think that that was, I think it was in September from my memory. But what happened was um, September 2018. And I may be wrong about that, but I think that's right. And I was actually in the graveyard where Elvis was first laid to rest, where the mausoleum is. And I was showing someone where Uncle Vester's grave and Aunt Cletus. And, you know, when I'm doing stuff like that, I'm not thinking about somebody, I'm not thinking about thieves. 
I'm just thinking about what I was doing. Never crossed my mind that someone would would get in my truck and and steal my camera while I was at the graveyard. But what happened was I was parked. I was out there looking and I saw a car pull up beside the Jeep. I was driving a Jeep Wrangler at the time and I saw a car. I could still see him. I saw him pull up beside the Jeep, but they got out and acted like they were looking at graves on the other side. And it was probably somebody in the car acting like that. Another person in the car got in my vehicle and stole my camera out of my truck, out of my, my thing. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, now, have you met any people that was actually close to Elvis? Yeah, a lot of people, actually. Um, a lot of good friends uh, and a lot of not so good friends. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so an example would be, um, uh, I know uh, Billy Stanley and David Stanley, which were Elvis's stepbrothers. A lot of people don't know that Elvis had stepbrothers. Uh, but he had three. One of them, sadly, has passed away, Ricky. Um, but way, the way that happened was when Elvis's mother passed away in 1958, uh, and Elvis was in Germany, Vernon went, Elvis's father, Vernon, went to Germany with him. And he met a lady named Dee Stanley. And him and Dee ended up getting married. And when they married, she had three sons, uh, Billy, David, and Ricky Stanley. And they ended up living at Graceland starting in 1960, um, 61-ish, somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, and then they got a house, um, I think, I'm going to say 1960, and I'm going from memory. Um, but I, I'm sure that they that they got married and the boys moved in Graceland 60. They house over uh, on uh, Old Hick, um, I mean, on Hermitage Street. And they lived there from about 61 to 64-ish when they built the house. And then they moved to the house over on Dolan. Um, but I know Billy uh, very well. Uh, I could call him right now on the phone. Uh, <laughs> David, I know semi-well. I, I don't have David's number in my phone, but I, I know David. Um, uh, Sam Thompson, Linda's brother. I know Sam pretty well. I knew Dick Grove very well. Dick sadly has passed away. I knew Rex uh, Mansfield and Elizabeth uh, Mansfield, which Elizabeth was Elvis's girlfriend in Germany. Her and Rex, and Rex was a friend of Elvis's in Germany. It was an army friend. They got married. Rex sadly has passed away, but I'm still friends with Elizabeth. I know uh, Billy Smith, which was Elvis's first cousin. Um, I know... Um, Ginger, not personally, you know, we're not best friends or anything like that, but I've conversed with Ginger. Um, just, I've had a lot, a lot of, and there's some really nice people out there. Um, and a lot of, uh, another one that just passed away, Dixie, you know, I knew Dixie, I interviewed Dixie. Elvis is not his, they say uh, he's Elvis's first girlfriend that that's maybe first steady girlfriend, maybe. Uh, I would go along with that. But Elvis had a lot of girlfriends. So yeah. I'd go along with that. Uh, June Winico, uh, Pat, her best friend. Um, so I've had a lot of a luck of knowing a lot of really cool people that were part of the uh, part of the story. Uh, Pat, which was Sunny. I mean, not Pat. Uh, Judy, which was Sonny's uh, wife, uh, Judy or Pat, um, which is Red's wife. I, I've, I've talked to Pat. So I've had a lot of luck with some really nice people in the story. Yeah. Now, did you ever think that you would be in communication with these people? You know, I did not. There was a time when I can remember thinking that, wow, these people are just unreachable. They'll never, I would never talk to those people. Um, and it's kind of surreal to, to talk to someone that was literally there because you got to think about this now. When I was 11 or 12 years old, I'm reading these books and these stories about these people. Now I'm standing there talking to this person. It really kind of blows my mind. It almost doesn't seem real. Um, and what I mean is I know that Billy Stanley was Elvis's stepbrother. I know he was there, but 
I never was there when it, you know what I'm saying? It's almost like it's not, it's not a real thing. I know it is, <laughs> you know, but it's just seemed, it's very surreal. I was, I, that's the right word for it. When I'm lucky enough to know some of them, um, it's, it's quite surreal. Now I will say, and I'm not going to say any names, but there's some that I wish I'd have never met, you know, sadly, <laughs> because it's kind of like one of those things, you know, they say that you never, you never meet your hero because you'll be disappointed. You know what I'm saying? You just keep them at arm's length and you'll always, they'll always be your hero. But if you ever meet them, they can never live up to what your expectations or, you know, how you thought that they would be. Um, but I've had those experiences, but very minimally, you know, most of the people have been very nice and very gracious and I was very, very lucky to know him. Uh, uh, and one specifically that I would say is Dick Grove. Dick was the head of security. And the exterior of Dick was, he seemed to be a very gruff, unapproachable person, is the way, when you see photographs of him, he's the head of security. He's a military <laughs> guy. You know what I'm saying? Scared. But... Once you get to know him, he was just a great guy. He was just, he was very nice to me. And he kind of made fun of the fact that he had that reputation. He thought it was funny that people were, thought he was unapproachable. You know, that kind of thing. I just thought, he's, uh, I have fond memories of Dick Grove. Now, uh, can you tell the story of you jumping the offense at Graceland? I sure can. So... <laughs> As I mentioned, in uh, when I was 11 years old, I started reading these stories. And then Elvis died in 1977 when I was 12 years old. So after Elvis died, prior to that, I don't remember walking in a store and Elvis Records being in a store. or Not that El they didn't sell Elvis Records. Of course they did at record stores. After Elvis died... Everywhere you went, there was Elvis stuff. If you went into a convenience store, there was Elvis magazines. If you went into the Family Dollar, there was Elvis magazines. They sold Elvis records in the Family Dollar. Um, so there was a point where, after he passed away, that suddenly there was all this stuff. He was on the front page of the National Enquirer. He was in magazines. Every month, there was a new magazine coming out. So I would get those things as a kid and I was reading these stories and learning and, and romanticizing the idea of Graceland and being Memphis mafia and hanging out there and all the cool things that they did. They rode horses and they rode go-karts and they took snowmobiles and took the, the, uh, the skis off the front, and put tires on it and drove those around and had crash them up derbies and they would shoot fireworks and they would do all these things. So, that was 1976. Okay, so fast forward 1988, 11 or 12 years later. July the 4th weekend, 1988. I had been thinking about those things for almost 12 years. Okay, romanticizing it. I finally am in a position to go. I've been married a little over a year. Uh, I had a really good job. I just bought a brand new car. I had a week's vacation. And so I was going to go take a trip to Graceland. I'd never been before. That was my first time. And all the way there, I thought about jumping that fence <laughs> and going behind the house. I wanted to see things that you could not see on the regular tour. And so I did that very thing. And uh, where I messed up was parking my car in a place where they started looking for me. <laughs> and uh, sadly, and I didn't know I was, you know, I was young and I was 20, what be 23 years old in, in, uh, 88 and <clears throat> scared because I didn't want to get locked up, but I took a camera with me, uh, and did take some photographs and I've got that video on YouTube. The, the pictures didn't come out. They, they came out enough that you can tell that I'm at behind Graceland, but the pictures, and the thing is, is you got to keep in mind, I did this in the middle of the night. I did it like one o'clock in the morning. So I had gone to a camera place and, and bought a, a 35 millimeter camera 
talked to the guy and I said, how do I take photos in dark? He said, you're going to need 1600 speed film. You need this camera, something that he left out and he probably didn't leave it out. I just didn't hear him or didn't listen was that when you're taking pictures in low light like that, you've got to use a tripod and not touch the camera. You hit the button and you let the camera sit there and it stays open long enough to absorb enough light to create a photograph. If you're holding the camera while that shutter's open for that period of time and it's trying to absorb the light, you're going to move it. And so any light that's in it is going to do streaks like that. And the pictures, that's what they are. So I wasn't smart enough to take a tripod with me, but I did go over. Um, I did go into the barn in the back. Um, I went behind Graceland. I went up to the guard shack that's on the right side of the house. I took a picture of the guard in the shack and just did a lot of stuff. And I would have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for those meddling kids. No, I'm just kidding. I'd have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for me parking my car in the wrong place and then looking for whoever was driving that car. I went down there and see, have you been to Graceland? No, I haven't, no. So if you're standing at the house and you're looking out, you could see over the fence. You, you've seen the, the rock fence that's yeah. at, at the street. You could see over it because the house is up here and the fence is down here. So when I'm starting back down, I could see them over the fence looking at my car with flashlights, my brand new car that I'd had like <laughs> two or three weeks. And I thought, hmm, that's not good. So what I did was I started, I was trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do? I turned around and looked at the house and I could see people with flashlights at the house looking for me. So I was about halfway between the house and the, and the road. Um, on the, if you're standing at the street on the right side fence, which is Dolan, that's where Vernon's house is. So what I did was I went over the fence went out to Dolan and I walked down and there's a uh, foot doctor's office on the corner, which by the way, was Elvis's foot doctor. It's closed now and Graceland owns that, that property. EPE does. They bought, they bought it when he, when he retired. And um, I went behind it, took my camera because I thought if I showed them that I did not take any pictures, they may be a little more lenient on me. Okay. So what I did was took my film out, Put it in the back then. You get thirty-five millimeter millimeter film. You know, is in those little containers, little uh, round things. I popped it in there and I slid it under the air conditioner behind the doctor's office, and I loaded a fresh roll of film. Then I went. I just walked out and I walked across the street. They were standing there waiting for me, and I showed him one of the first things I showed him when I walked up was I said, "I just want you to see I did not take any pictures," and uh, they didn't care. They went, they took me across the street into the guard shack. And I've said this in a video before. When you're younger, things seem bigger and things seem longer than they probably were. I, my recollection was they kept me in that guard shack for hours. Honestly, it was probably minutes. I, I don't, all I remember is being in the guard shack and them being mad at me and saying, how dare you? You know, what were you doing? What were you thinking? We could call and have you arrested and yada, yada, yada. You know what I'm thinking? I'm what? in the guard shack. This is cool. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and my poor wife is at the hotel. She knows that I'm going to jump the fence and I didn't want to have to call her and I'm locked up, you know, but, uh, but and I've been building up for a long time. 11 or 12 years is a long time to think about something. And then finally um, be able to act on it, you know. Now, you met someone else that jumped the fence as well, right? Yeah, Tennessee Ted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, Tennessee Ted had a little more luck than I did. Tennessee Ted jumped the fence in broad daylight. And the way they did it is they went over the back fence. So they went around on the street. Um, I don't remember the name of that street. I should remember it. It goes to Lair. turns off of Dolan and goes around the Lair. But there's houses... The Graceland is shaped. It's not a perfect rectangle. That corner, there's a barn. And on this corner, there's a thing sticking out. It's about 13 acres. But on that side, there's some trailers and stuff. And there's a back gate on that side. But across the back of it is houses. And when Elvis bought Graceland, there was nothing. It was a farm. Those houses were built after he bought Graceland and put the fence up. So... Um, and the houses on Dolan were built in 63, 64. 
Um, so those houses were built in about 1960, the ones that are across the gate. Anyway, Ted had gone uh, to someone's house there and walked between the houses and him and a friend went over the fence back there and then just started walking through the, um, the back pasture and made their way up to Vernon's office and were taking pictures as they were going. And back then you could do back then the rolls of film from my memory were 12, 18, 24, 36. And I'm talking about the rolls of film, 35 millimeter, you know, uh, what we would call uh, an SLR. Um, so he didn't remember, his friend was the one with the camera and he didn't remember how many pictures it was, but basically they had used all the pictures up by the time they got caught. They actually were fumbling through Elvis's trash in front of Vernon's office when somebody comes out and goes, hey, what are y'all doing? And they, they turn around and said, you know, we're uh, such as they were college kids. They had left college and gone all the way to Memphis. And um, and so the whoever it was, he didn't remember who it was, but whoever it was said, I'll be right back. Went in the house and Elvis came out. They got to talk to him. Mm. Wow. And, but they had no way of taking a picture. They'd use all their pictures. <laughs> but he still had the poster. Elvis said, guys, you know, we're we're in the South. And uh, when, you know, when you come next time, just come to the front like everybody else. It'll be all right. And <laughs> um, so they got Vester to take them back down to the guard shack and give them a poster. This would have been after the Aloha show. This has been 73. So they actually... And Ted still had his poster that Vester gave him that day. Oh, it's, wow. I've got a video where I interview Ted about that, and he shows the poster. Oh, wow. Back to the house, and he tells us what he did, and we kind of look at where he went over the fence and all that. Now, when you jumped the fence, I was, you know, push you, uh, you know, I, was, I guess you was nervous about it because you didn't know if you, you didn't know if you was going to get caught or not. I was terrified. Yeah. <laughs> But, but, you know, there's a fine line between terror and um, desire. You know, does that, I guess that's the right way to say it. And the thing you got to think about was I, I felt, I knew, I felt like there was a high probability that I could go to jail, you know, for this. But my desire to see overrode my fear of going to jail. Luckily, I didn't go to jail, but I could have. You know, and I think maybe if they'd have caught me on the property, they could have, they'd have probably sent me to jail, but they didn't, I confessed to it, but they didn't physically catch me there. And, uh, and I didn't take anything. I didn't disturb anything. I just wanted to see. <laughs> you know, I had read these stories and romanticized and something that I'll tell you that I saw in that white barn in the back, in the very back corner, there's a horse barn. It's still there. Um, and it's beside Vernon's house. Vernon's house is like the barn actually sticks out where Vernon's swimming pool is, is beside the barn. So it's kind of juts out like that. And Vernon's house is beside it. And when I went to the barn, it doesn't look now like it did back then. Back, uh, back then it was your typical old barn that you would see on a farm. That's that wasn't even painted white. It was wood siding, uh, where the paint had worn off of it and it was weathered. And the boards had shrunk up and there was cracks between them. I could see in the barn. I didn't go physically in the barn, but there was one light bulb hanging in the barn. And so I could look in there and you know what I could see? I could see those snowmobiles that wow. I had read about because I'd seen pictures of them. They were, uh, you know, the snowmobiles were in there and they were kind of stacked on top of each other. And then on one side of it was a uh, kind of a, a roof, like a lean-to type roof. No sides, just a roof. And under there was uh, Lisa's golf cart, Elvis's golf cart. There was a three-wheeler under there. There was all I sat on. You know, <laughs> and uh, there was all kinds of stuff under that. And I just could not believe that I was seeing this stuff that I'd read about in these books. You know, and, and I know that sounds crazy for desire to, to overtake fear, but that's, I mean, that's, I can remember being there in my heart beating like that and being terrified, but yeah. not so terrified. I didn't do it. You know, yeah. now can you tell us about the time that you found the ambulance from 1977? I sure can. So I had interviewed a guy there's, you can find the interview on my channel with a guy named Mac McQueen and Mac worked at Baptist hospital. He was worked on the equipment. 
you know how they'll have defib machines and and the 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 things that they hook up for different uh for different tests his job was uh, he was a maintenance mechanic he worked on those those types of machines and he's where his shop was was up high where he had a window by, like where he was working on his stuff he could look out the window and see the emergency room and he said in the video and you can find this on my channel in the video he said that he was standing there and he heard the ambulance come up and anytime you hear an ambulance come up you always glance you know you'll look and he said that something that caught his eye about this particular ambulance is normally when they pull up, they'll turn the, the siren off, you know, the sound and the light off, and they'll do like that and back in. He said this, that is not what they did. He said when that ambulance pulled up, that guy threw it in park before it came to a stop, and it kind of jolted to a stop like that. And he said he was standing there looking at it like, what in the world? He didn't even back up. He said then they jump out, and they run around there, and they snatch him out of the back of the ambulance. And he said the thing that, that really uh, – caught his attention there was whoever was on the gurney's face was covered up. Their legs were uncovered. And you've always heard the story that, that Elvis, when they found him, that he was in rigor and that is, and if you're in, and he was in a fetal position, which means his legs would be curled up. He said, this person that was on this gurney's legs were straight and they were wiggling like that. And his face was covered up. So he said, he looked at his supervisor and said, Hey, come here and look at this. So the supervisor walked over there and looked, and as they're wheeling him in, he goes, man, this, what in the world is that? That's weird. So he said there was a tunnel between where his building was that went under the ground over to uh, the emergency room. So both of them walked over to the emergency room, and they stood outside of that room, and he could hear them in their defibbing. They didn't know it was Elvis yet, but he could hear them in there, clear, and they would hit. Clear, and they would hit. So he said that they stood there for a little while trying to figure it out and people were running everywhere and nobody was saying who it was other than it was a VIP. And I'm paraphrasing this story for, for time. So he said that they had finally decided um, that nobody was going to tell them who it was. So they were going to go back to work. So as he's going through the tunnel, he encountered a nurse that was crying and he said, what in the world are you crying for? What's wrong? She said, Elvis has died. And then it hit him that that was Elvis. So his supervisor went on back to work. He went back and waited until um, the room was cleared and went in there and got the serial numbers off of the machines that they used to defib Elvis and marked the defib paddles. He actually took something and cut uh, a, a thing in one of the paddles so he could, could mark them. It took him 16 years to get them before they aged out. But he got the defib paddles and got the machines. And he told me that he had looked for the ambulance and he had found it. And it was in a backyard. He told me the people's name and he told me the street. He didn't have their name quite right. But what I did was found, I went to the street and I Googled all the people that lived on that street. I found the name that was the closest one. And I went to that house and knocked on the door the next time I was in Memphis. And the guy, it was actually a lady, her uh, uh, she came and she said, yeah, it used to be here. It's my husband's brother. It's at his house, but he's passed away. I'll call his widow, my sister-in-law and see if she's willing to talk to you about this. And so I expected a phone call that day. I'm sitting on ready waiting for my phone to ring. Well, it never rang. So over a period of years, I went back to that house. Every time I would go to Memphis, I would drive to that house and knock on their door. Sometimes it would be her. Sometimes it would be her husband. Every time I would give them a card, my business card, my spa guy card with my phone number on it. And so over a period of years, they got a pretty good stack of spa guy cards. <laughs> and uh, so in 2018, the first time that Trey and I filmed together, he asked if he could go with me to film. So we were going to go to Elvis week. He was going, so we decided that day we would film together. And I had a bunch of stories planned for that week that I was going to film. So what happened is I went, um, we we did a story. I mentioned Rex Mansfield earlier. Rex uh, was in Germany with Elvis. He was in the military. If you go back and look at the photographs of Elvis being inducted in the Army, there was 
19 people, including Elvis, Rex was one of those 19 people. So you could see him in the photographs. And as I mentioned, I knew Rex. Uh, sadly, Rex has passed away, but I was able to be friends with Rex and got a lot of information from him. And there's photos of Rex and Elvis at a house with a limousine. And so I asked Rex, where was this house? Where did this happen now? And what it was, was when him and Elvis had driven back from Texas in basic, they drove back in the Continental Mark II, the white Continental. And Elvis, he said when they were coming across the bridge, that Elvis let him use his phone in his car. Now, this is 1958. Elvis had a phone in his car, 1958, okay? He let him use his phone and call a family member and uh, to set up a time that they could meet at another family member's house for Elvis to drop him off so Elvis didn't have to drive all the way. I think he was from Dresden, and I may be wrong about that, but I think it was Dresden, which was a, another distance. So Elvis didn't have to drive all the way. They met at a house that was part of the way, which was Rex's... I think it was Rex's brother's wife's parents' house. Okay. So, uh, but anyway, or Rex's, no, it was Rex's brother-in-law's parents' house. That's what it was. So anyway, I said, Rex, where did these photos happen at? And he told me the street or the road that they were on. So I started doing my research. So anyway, I told Trey, I said, I've got this really cool story. We're going to go knock on this guy's door and tell him that Elvis was at his house. And we're going to do it live on camera. I've got photos of Elvis at this guy's house. So we're going to go. So we did that. And I didn't even put on the list of things I was going to film that uh, Elvis week. I did not put going to the other house about the ambulance because I'd, um, I'd pretty much given up. I literally, every time I would go to their door, they would give me another clue about, they would say, oh, she lives in this neighborhood. So I literally, they told me she lives in this neighborhood. I went to that neighborhood and drove around. I went in the winter when the trees, when the leaves were down, they flew my drone over the neighborhood trying to see the, the amulet somewhere. You know, I did a lot of stuff trying to find it. So anyway, we're at this guy's house and we got to knock on his door and show him that Elvis was at his house. You can find that video on my, on my channel. And he had no idea. He was astounded. He works for FedEx, the guy that owns the home. So anyway, while we were there, I told Trey, I said, that house that I always stop at is like, two blocks from here. It's right there. So while I'm here, I'm going to drive over there. So I drove over there. I got my business card out. Like always, I went and knocked on the door. The lady came to the door and I said, look, I know you are tired of seeing me, but it is of the utmost importance that I see this ambulance. She said, you know what? She said all these time, this time that you've been coming here, she said, I kept just stacking your card up and I never really, the, the truth was she never even called the sister-in-law and told her they were, I didn't know it, but they were strange. They were mad. So she never called her. So she said, finally, one day I looked at those cards and I thought, what in the world is this? So I got on YouTube and I pulled up your channel and I started watching some of your videos and I understand what you're doing now. This is her name and this is her address and this is her phone number. So that day, that was August the 16th, 41 years to the day that Elvis was in that ambulance. I drove to that lady's house. I pull up and you can find this video on YouTube. Trey was with me, luckily, to film my reaction to it. So I would have never filmed that because you wouldn't have seen me because I, you don't, you don't, you rarely see me in my videos. I'm showing other stuff. So anyway, I pull up in the lady's yard and the ambulance is way out in the backyard. So I take pictures of it to prove that I've seen it because I didn't know if she's going to kick me out of the yard or what she was going to do. And I go knock on the door. And she could not have been nicer. And I uh, was very nice, said, yes, please go back there and look at it. And then that day I said, you know, that thing needs to be in a museum somewhere. And she said, yeah, I know. And I said, and her husband had passed away. And I said, well, so does that mean it's for sale? She said, yeah, it's for sale. I said, okay, well, let's talk about that. So I bought it. And so the ambulance that they used to try to save Elvis's life, August the 16th, 1977. I bought 41 years to the day that he was in it. Oh, wow. And that has been uh, accredited. There's a, Memphis has the fire museum. There's a guy that is over the fire museum. Uh, uh, his last name, his name's Bill Edelman. 
Bill is the curator of the fire museum in, in Memphis. And he started at the fire department in 1977. Ah. So he has followed that ambulance. It was known as the Elvis unit. That was what it was called. The paperwork that came with it literally says Elvis unit on it. But I had him come look at it. I have the video on my channel to corroborate that it is the one. He even had pictures that he took of it in 2001 when it was auctioned off. Uh, or in No, I'm telling you wrong, in 1991 when it was auctioned off. And the pictures match the unit that I have. There's dents in it that were in his pictures that he took at the auction in 1991. Oh, so wow. it is not maybe the one, it is the ambulance. All right. So, so did you ever think that you would come across it, or did you think uh, that you wouldn't that you wouldn't ever come across it? Or, well, that's a great question. You know, uh, so let's back up. Um, let's back up to when I was a kid, 1977. <laughs> Remember, I said that after Elvis died, you could go in a convenience store, and they would have magazines. In 1977 or early 78, you could go in a convenience store and they had a display in there of a poster of that ambulance. Oh. Okay. I bought one. I think it was 89 cents from my memory. And I had it on the wall in my room. And I can remember looking at that going, man, I would love to see that vehicle right there in person. It's just, it, and look, and some people say, oh, that's a, that's a creepy part of the history. You know, it's all history. The The car that JFK was assassinated in is still part of history. It didn't go to a dump. It's in the Henry Ford Museum. You know, oh, yeah. so th there's important, even though it's tragic history, there's important pieces of history. And I feel like the ambulance is, is an important part of it. They didn't kill Elvis with this ambulance. They tried to save his life. You know, and um, since then, I actually have the, uh, and back in 77, it wasn't 911 tapes. But I actually have the audio of all of the of the, the emergency calls where Joe Esposito calls and has them come. I have the all of that. And uh, but that's not stuff that I've put out in public and probably never will. But I do oh, have yeah. it all. Mm -hmm. Now, and why do you think people kind of uh, kind of dislikes what you do on YouTube? Um, I don't know that I would say that people dislike it. There's a small group of people that <laughs> that dislike what I do on YouTube, but it's a very small group. I have, uh, as of today, I have 103,000 subscribers and I still have a good following, but there is a group of people that, that, uh, for whatever, I mean, you could, I could give you a thousand reasons why I really don't know why people like to hate other people or hate on other people. Uh, I will say this, that, that it's kind of a, um, it's kind of a study in human psyche. Why, if I told somebody something bad about you, they would believe me and they would repeat it. But if I told them something good about you, they would go, oh, that's nice. and never tell anybody. Right? And that's what humans are. You know, yeah. and why that is, I don't know. But um, I don't, you know, there's a certain amount of people. One thing that I've always done is just kind of part of, uh, the way that I do business, if you will, on YouTube um, is when somebody comes on and they say something that is over the line, out of the way, I just block them. <laughs> and so I have a block list of thousands of people because people don't know how to act. Their mama didn't teach them. If you don't have something nice to say, to just keep your mouth shut. And so for some reason on the internet, people feel... I'm going to use the word entitled. They feel entitled to say things that they would never say to me if we were standing face to face. You know what I'm saying? So they're keyboard warriors and they're hiding behind stuff. So when people do that, I just block them. And I may, I may say something smart. I may say something smart to them. Like, you know, clearly your mother didn't teach you that if you don't have anything nice to say to keep your stupid mouth shut and then I'll block them. You know, I'll do stuff like that. So a lot of people, I think, didn't like the fact that I wasn't willing to take their abuse and it made them mad because if you go back and you start looking at the, there's a group of haters out there now, but you know what? If you're doing anything substantial, there's going to be people that don't like what you do. It's just, you know, you're doing it 
when you have haters. That's that's the answer to it, I believe. But uh, you'll find that most of those people go, oh, yeah, that guy, he blocked me back in. So, you know why I blocked you? Because you said something that you shouldn't have said. You know, I don't block people that, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, just don't say anything. But people feel entitled to say whatever they want to, and I just don't tolerate it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, uh, can you tell us about your podcast uh, that you have with Trey? Yeah, we have a podcast called Witwam, um, and it's Wishing Cotton Was a Monkey. And that is a, uh, a, a simple way of talking about the world that we live in today where everything is pretend on some level. People really don't say what they really mean, uh, like uh, what uh, political correctness. People are not politically correct because that's what they really believe. They're politically correct because they think that's what you want to hear. You know, and Witwam is about people uh, pretending that things are true that are not true. And basically, they're wishing Cotton was a monkey. And that all goes back to an episode of The Little Rascals. And the episode was Spanky, and he had a friend called Cotton. And Cotton uh, was uh, a guy that Spanky would, would hang out with. And in this episode, a monkey broke out of the circus. And But Spanky had seen that monkey and just wanted to have a monkey. Like Elvis had a monkey, by the way, scattered. Oh, yeah. He had another monkey. Uh, so I found where... Some people gifted him a monkey uh, from a pet shop over at Lamar Airways, but that's a different story. But anyway, he didn't keep that monkey long. Um, but anyway, um, in this episode, the monkey actually gets a hold of some fireworks and Spanky is sitting there and Cotton is sitting to his left and he doesn't know that the monkey's bringing uh, fireworks and standing over the top of Cotton's head, and Spanky's sitting there, and he closes his eyes, and he says, I sure do wish Cotton was a monkey. I sure do wish Cotton was a monkey. And about that time, he hears an explosion because the monkey had thrown a firework. When he opens his eyes, uh, when the explosion happened, Cotton jumped up and ran off, and the monkey jumped down where Cotton was sitting. So when he opens his eyes and looks, there's Cotton. There's the monkey. You see? So he was wishing Cotton was a monkey. And I just think that that's a, a simple way of talking about people pretending that they believe something that they know is not true. And I just, I, I just don't believe in doing that. I think it's, it's false. It's fake. There's no um, redeeming qualities to that. And I don't understand the point of it. I would rather for somebody to be honest with me than to pretend like they like me or pretend like they like something. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, um, and I don't mean being honest with me in a mean way. You know, you could say, hey, I just don't like your channel. Okay. Don't watch. But you don't have to go on and go, hey, man, you're the worst SOB I've ever met. You know, I wish you would die. You know, that's over the line. That's how you get blocked. But um, so I'm not wishing Cotton was a monkey because when somebody does that, I block them. Oh, yeah. Now, <laughs> Now, uh, where can people find the podcast and also your YouTube channel? Okay, so the podcast, you can find it on all podcast platforms, and you can also find it on YouTube. You would search for Witwam, W-C-W-A-M, Wishing Cotton Was a Monkey, or Wishing Cotton Was a Monkey. Or you can go to um, uh, YouTube and look for it the same way. Uh, and you look for the little white monkey you'll see is, is our logo. And then you could find me under, if you put Spy Guy and Elvis in on YouTube, you'll find me. And you'll also find some haters. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? Uh, that's all right. <laughs> all right. Uh, before we go, um, with every episode, I ask the guests for a closing thought. Uh, do you got a closing thought? Yeah, I do. You know what? Uh, going back on that, and you know, you're a creator. Yeah. And I'm sure that you've had people say things out of the way to you that are unfair and not nice. And I will say this, that the people that that enjoy podcasts, the people that enjoy videos that watch YouTube, that listen to podcasts, 
a lot of work goes into this. And I don't mean a little bit of work. I mean a lot of work. Most of the people that are doing podcasts and doing videos are not making millions of dollars doing it. They're doing it for the love of history or whatever their subject is. Be nice to those people. I, I don't know how much time you spend, Jacob, but I spend about 30 hours a week editing, posting, getting ready for the next series of videos next week. I literally spend about 30 hours a week editing videos. That's not counting the time that I take off of my from my business and going out and filming, traveling, all the other stuff. That's just editing. And it's hurtful when you pour your heart and soul into something and you spend time doing something that that you think is good, is helping people, is entertaining, educational. And then people that have never done anything of any substance think that it's okay to come on there and try to tear you down. It's just wrong. And, and if you're that kind of person, quit doing it. It's not right. It's not fair. It's hurtful to the people. It takes a mental toll on people. And that's another thing that I'll, I'll finish with this. The main reason that I block people like I do is for my own mental sanity. Because if I allow those people to just keep on with that, after a while, there'll be so many of them that I would believe that that's what people really think rather than the people that support me. So mm -hmm. I just get rid of them. You know, it's not worth my sanity to fight with those people. I just I just do away with them. You know, sadly, it shouldn't be like that. Oh, yeah. But it's part of when you're on social media and that kind of stuff, there's some people that are miserable and they want you to be miserable, too. I'm not a miserable person. I am uh, very happy. Uh, I've been lucky, lucky and very blessed by God Almighty, my personal Savior, Jesus Christ, to be very blessed financially. I'm very fortunate to be able to go and travel and see the things and enjoy the things that I have. And some people that makes them mad, you know, and what I would say to them is there's nothing special about me. You can go out and do the same stuff that I did. It just requires a commitment to work and it requires work. Just go out and do the work. And there's so many people that don't want to do the work, but want to get paid. And you know what? You're doing the work. I'm doing the work. You did. What'd you say? 47? Uh, 40, uh, well, this is 48. This is 48. We did 47 episodes of a podcast last year. Still don't have a big following on the podcast, but I'm still going to do it. And I'm oh, not yeah. doing it for a big following. I'm doing it because I enjoy doing it. And I do have a following of people that like it just like you do. And that's, you know, if we were doing it for money, we'd have to be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I love it. And I appreciate you asking me to do this. I really do. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course, because uh, some people told me to interview you, I said, well, you know, I don't know if you'll be up to it or not. Okay. So I sent you an email and you said, yeah, sure. I said, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Glad to do it. Yeah. Oh, right. uh, well, Guy, well, I want to thank you for coming on, talking about your YouTube channel and Elvis and jumping the fence. Uh, kind of went over the time limit, but that's all right. Yeah. Appreciate you, Jacob. Thank you for inviting me, my friend. It was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. Um, anyways, and that wraps it up this week for Conversations with Jacob. Tune in next week for another interview. Until then, uh, uh, until then, uh, be safe and uh, God bless.